All right, how about oaths? Jesus says, swear not at all. And that has been taken by some, many in the Anabaptist tradition, so that we cannot take any oaths whatsoever. I have some trouble with that application of Jesus' words. Um, throughout the Bible, we find um, forms of oaths which are used with evident um, <coughs> approval. Adjuration is one. When you um, uh, in, engage in adjuration, you, in effect, put an, another party under oath. Look at Joshua 7:19 or Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. But also in the Bible, you have forms of solemn attestation. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Well, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and anything beyond that is, uh, is unworthy. Well, but he goes beyond that, and he says, now look, I'm telling you the truth. I am telling you the truth. And there are these forms of uh, attestation in Genesis 42:15 or Exodus 24, 7, Deuteronomy 27, 11 and following, 1 Samuel 1.26, and then also the verily, verily of Jesus. In a, in a sense, that's a form of oath-taking as well. And um, the Bible says that the believer is always under oath, under oath to God. And consequently, I can't see that all oaths are um, forbidden. Scripture commands us to swear in God's name. Deuteronomy 6.13. Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. Let's look at one of these. Deuteronomy 6.13. Thou shalt fear Jehovah thy God, and him shalt thou serve, and shalt swear by his name. You are to take an oath by God's name, but what's the point? You're to take an oath by God's name, and not by the names of the pagan gods. You're not to be using some other form, but you're to swear by God's name. But there you see we are told to swear in God's name. Uh, you can look also at Isaiah 65:16 or Jeremiah 12:16. Um, now, the Bible gives us examples of oath-taking. God himself takes an oath. Genesis 22:16. And this is stressed in Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 17, that God himself has taken an oath. He has sworn by himself. Jesus accepts the adjuration, uh, Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64, and gives his own solemn attestations in his teaching, verily, verily. Paul himself takes oaths, Romans 1, 9, Romans 9, 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, 2 Corinthians 11, 31, Galatians 1, 20, Philippians 1, 8, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 and 10. Other biblical characters, as in Genesis 14, Genesis 21, uh, are, are shown as giving oaths. And there are many examples of oaths in the Bible. Psalm 22, Psalm 50, Psalm 65. And in fact, an oath-bound commitment is the very essence of a covenant obligation in our religious confession. Look at Romans 14, 11, or Philippians 2, 10. All right, so in light of this context in the Bible, it seems to me that the prohibition of oaths in Matthew 5, also James 5, verse 12, remember, that the prohibition of oaths must be read in the context of using oaths in a way uh, that is frivolous, diverting uh, attention from the oath being in God's name to the oath being according to something else in creation, or not being serious in the oath-taking, or... Uh, or expecting that people will not believe you until you take an oath so that your yes is not yes ordinarily and your no, no. So Jesus is speaking against the misuse of the oath, it seems to me, using substitutes, trying to escape full obligation, and not having to be um, constantly voracious in what you say. Okay. What are sinful oaths, then? Well, sinful oaths uh, are a number... Can, can be seen in a number of ways. Idolatrous oaths are sinful. That is, oaths made in the name of a false god. I swear by Zeus. Okay? Watch it. 
You shouldn't talk that way. Pledging something which is unlawful in an oath is sinful as well. One cannot make a vow uh, to do things which are sinful or to pledge things which are sinful. And uh, just as one application of that, I would caution you against the idea of taking an oath of secrecy when you don't know what you're going to have to be secret about. Many societies require that now. Do you pledge and do you swear that you will be you know, utterly confidential about this or that? And you say, you, one would have to say, well, I have to find out what it's about first. And he says, well, I don't want you to know unless I have the guarantee that you're not going to tell anybody. Well, at that point, I think it's probably the Christian attitude to say, well, I can't take that kind of oath. Um, obviously, oaths which are not kept are also sinful. Okay, so lying oaths, such as in perjury in the law court, or reneging on a vow which involves self-sacrifice. The psalmist says in Psalm 15 that the man is blessed who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. And backing out of one's commitments, one's oaths, is in fact a form of sin against this commandment. Evasions, through the substitute of God's name I've mentioned, uh, or oaths arising from wrong attitudes are sinful. The Bible speaks of rash and foolish oaths, and taking an oath very quickly, without hesitation. By the way, here, um, no, here I should not. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Presumptuous swearing, uh, as in Isaiah 48, verses 1 and 2, assuming our right to swear in God's name despite uh, unrepentant sinfulness. That is, that we can go ahead and, and use God's name and swear when... Um, uh, we haven't repented of our sins, are over-frequent and trivial swearing, always saying, you know, well, I swear to God this is the truth. I swear, you know, when people have to always reinforce what they're saying by oaths, then in fact they're not following the form of an oath because their word should ordinarily be yes and yes and no and no. Um, I hate running over these things this quickly. Let me go on to the whole question of humor because uh, there are many things that you can get from books on the subject that we're discussing uh, and, but there are some things that are not discussed all that often that, that I would like to try to make some contribution to. Um, I want to talk about um, the idea of humor as being a misuse of human language. Uh, there are plenty of people who, um, who will rail upon you know, frivolous speech or, or being humorous as not being showing due decorum and all that. But of course, humor is found in the Bible. In fact, God is said to laugh in the Bible. If you want to do some study on that. And it seems to me humor can have uh, and can underline, some, well, can have some very positive functions, for instance, underlining our own human frailty. Uh, I think sometimes we do need to laugh at ourselves. I think we need to, um, to laugh at the theologians sometimes. They can be ridiculous, can't they? And that helps to, to give us a due appreciation for who we are and what they are and what they're doing. Um, I think humor can also remind us of... Uh, uh, well, the importance or lack thereof of our own situation. Um, you're all, and I hate using myself as an example because uh, it just isn't appropriate. I don't, I don't fit in so well uh, to the pattern that I want to teach you. But the, um, the fact is you all know something of, uh, of my own situation right now and, uh, and plans for the future. And, uh, you know, it gave me a good deal of relief today to, to listen to Jim Croce reading, uh, singing about these uh, low-down, mind-messing, working at the car wash blues. And I thought to myself, you know, that one has got to have a due sense of his own lack of importance in terms of the span of history. One can't get too upset, you know. Um, humor can help you to have a perspective. And I'm not saying you live all your life in that, in that uh, mindset, but I'm saying it can have some positive functions. It can show us the incongruities in our lives as well. It can lighten the situation. It can make us happy, and I don't think God wants us to be unhappy all the time. It can give us a perspective on the whole. 
But now, having said that there is a positive use to humor, Ephesians 5.4 uh, becomes the touchstone of a proper and improper use of humor. This may not be the only passage, but it's uh, one that will help us uh, orient our discussion. Paul says um, in verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as become saints, nor filthiness, nor foolish talking or jesting, which are not befitting, but rather giving of thanks. Humor can be used as an escape from the demands and the seriousness of God's word. You see, there are people who always have something witty to say. By the way, I'm probably stepping on toes here, not because there's anybody like that in this room so much, but you see, the people who always have something witty to say, they're usually the people who are the most popular. We all like that kind of person, you know? He's lighthearted, he's easy to get along with, we never feel any sense of shame or embarrassment, or uh, he's never serious with us. And so the very people that we often enjoy the most, it seems to me, come close, well, have to be very careful about this, always having something witty to say, who always point to a laughable use of a truth, who it seems to me detract from the truth by counterexample, um, are always playfully contrary to any hard or ethical position taken. You know, as you never can get them to get serious about this. You know, it's not that they deny that we should be serious, but I'm mean, just always kind of happy about this and taking it kind of lightly. Well, you can't do that. I mean, having said that there's a place for humor, humor isn't what life is made up of, and God has some very serious things to tell us in the Word. In fact, sometimes our humor can amount to ridiculing the gospel, and we can use language and humor as an escape, as a way of withdrawing from the very presence of God and His holiness and His demands upon us. I'm going to push a little bit further. I don't imagine any of you have trouble with this. We come to the question of the purity of language in non-oath situations. I've already covered all the types of oaths, well, not all of them, but many of the oaths which are sinful, oaths which are proper. But now, what about the purity of language when we're not swearing, like in a court of law or something like that? Um, it has been said by many that the use of language which is not totally pure is sinful and a violation of this commandment. Um, for instance, expressions of disgust and pain Let's say I hit my, my thumb with a hammer and I say, oh, darn. Okay, and somebody says, well, what you really mean there is, oh, damn, don't you? And it's not your place to damn anything. And you're really just using that as a substitution uh, for something else. And in many cases, substitutions for God's name, you know, oh, golly, or oh, gee, and things like that. And if you look at the historical derivation of those things, it is argued, uh, it's quite clear that this is a substitution for God's name. Well, this is a terribly complex thing, and I must say that I'm very uncomfortable, even with my neo-Puritan friends that share, in many regards, what is probably a fairly narrow and hard-nosed approach to Christian ethics that I have, that we can make that very simple, uh, over-simple, by, by saying, well, when a person says darn or gee or golly, that he's violating this commandment. And okay, all the words about caution having been said, they need to be said. The fact is, I'm not really sure that in all cases that people grow up using that as a substitute for God's name. Okay? Imagine a person who grows up in the back hills of uh, Arkansas somewhere, and uh, every time something goes wrong, he says, oh, sour pickles. Okay? Okay, and someday you stop him in his tracks and you say, now, wait a minute, what do you mean, sour pickles? And he says, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, it's just... And my family and our friends and our neighbors, I mean, this is what you say when things are not going right. You say sour pickles. 
I really think that it comes very close to that. Um, historical derivations aside, often enough people you know, will say golly or gee or something like that, and it's only because that is a syllable that is used. And I grant you, historically, it was a substitute, and it was wrong. But historical derivation doesn't mean that's the contemporary use. Okay, um, but of course, when it is a substitute, and you know often enough it is, you know, we get in a tight situation, we're almost ready to say damn, but we say darn, um, then that's when you have to start thinking about the purity of your language. But now I want to push a little bit further. How about when we're not using substitutes for God's name, but we're just saying things that are uncomfortable in society? It's hard to teach on this without offending people. <laughs> and having said that, uh, you'll know that I'm instructing you and not trying to, to be gross with you. But I mean, if somebody hits his, um, hits his thumb and says, crap, is that a violation of this commandment about not taking God's name in vain? Well, he doesn't use God's name. He isn't swearing. It's not a substitute. Um, so what do we say about this? Well, I think the first thing is the Bible does make it clear that our language should be pure, it should be wholesome, it should be becoming. And therefore, the constant use of this kind of language is, I think, very sinful. And it's unbecoming of a Christian that uh, those things which are wholesome and pure are not uh, what's appearing in his speech, but it's being riddled with these uh, words which are not appropriate. Okay, you always have to say what is the general truth. And now I want to go back and make the exception. I do think we need strong expressions of disgust. I do think we need ways to express real pain. And I think it's a shame that the Christian church through the years and through the Victorian period especially, has taken the stance that Christians should never utter words like that. But I think according to Scripture, there are some things that we should be disgusted about. And so disgusted that language should reflect that disgust. There are situations where strong language ought to be used and total contempt ought to be expressed. And this does not fit into the culture in which we live and it doesn't fit the mindset of our age. But you see, the mindset of our age doesn't take sin very seriously either. And I think that the time comes sometimes that when something is really worthy of the damnation of God, that Christians ought to say so unequivocally and strongly. I think they ought to say, God damn it, and mean it. Now, of course, if they can't mean it, and if they're just something frivolous and it's over and over again, then, of course, we're falling into the pattern that we've already talked about. So, uh, don't worry about that and what I'm trying to instruct you. But you see, the Bible... Oh, and by the way, w when you say that, that's a good place where the substitution of words is totally inappropriate. I mean, if you're really at the point in preaching or exhortation where you want to say, God damn it, don't say, you know, golly darn it, because it isn't appropriate. Because at that point, you see, you are speaking for the Lord God Almighty, and you want to be clear. You want to give a clarion call to the damnation that God will bring upon this. Well, let me give you an example. I think we're to the point in our country where we have to start saying about the abortion epidemic, God damn it, and he will. And I'm, I'm afraid that we as Christians are just too meek and mild about that. I think we ought to be screaming about the bloodshed in our land, about innocent people dying. All right, just as a way of example, I bring up abortion. But beyond that, let's look at Philippians 3, verse 8. Now, those of you who have studied this question before know what I'm, I'm getting into, but there are plenty of us who have not taken duly in a duly serious way, the fact that strong language is needed sometimes, and the Bible uses it. Before I read Philippians 3.8, I want to remind you that Isaiah says, all our righteousness is, as Victorian Puritan language, filthy rags. All right? Now, a pastor in the 20th century evangelical church, a pastor especially in polite society, 
especially in the South, if you will, has got to be very careful, and he's got to he's got to educate his people, and he's got to give the context, and he's got to build up to this sort of thing. But you see, you don't have any concept of what Isaiah is saying about your sin until you realize that he's not talking about dirty rags, the sort of things that might be in your hall closet and you use to wash the car with. All our righteousness is as dirty rags. But you see, Isaiah says, all our righteousness is as menstruous cloth. I mean, you want to see the disgust God has for what you think is righteousness? Then Isaiah uses that strong form of language. Now, I don't think Isaiah went around talking like that frivolously and always spotting his speech with, with references to that kind of um, uh, uh, nasty nastiness. But you see... It was appropriate in the Word of God. Now, in Philippians 3.8, Paul is very upset about this pride of the Pharisees and the, and the, and the uh, Judaizers, and the pride of the Jews, their background, and their self-righteousness. So having gone through um, how he has all the right to be proud about these things, verse 7, how be it what things were gained to me, these things I counted lost for Christ. And Paul says... Yeah, in fact, I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things. And in fact, I do count them. And then you see our translations, frankly, let us down. They really do. And I realize that in polite society, you aren't to say that sort of thing. But Paul was not speaking about polite society. He's talking about self-righteousness and what it means in the sight of God. And so when we say, you see, Paul's really building up here. He says, I count all these things but loss. I count them. And then somebody says, rubbish. Well, as a matter of fact, if you want to do a study of the word that he uses there, it's gutter language. It's the language of the tavern of the ancient world. And it doesn't even correspond to our nice word crap. It is the word in Greek for shit. And Paul says, that's what I count it. And you see, to say dung and to say refuse and to say all these sorts of things makes sin polite. And it's not. Paul says, that's my self-righteousness. And he doesn't, I don't think as a, as a matter of course, use that language. But he says, those of you who think you are so polite, you know, and so genteel, you Pharisees, I'll tell you what your righteousness is. Isaiah called it minstrous cloth, and I'll call it shit. And then what happens to the audience? Well, you can be sure if anybody was asleep in the congregation, they woke up. <laughs> and they woke up to the startling realization that God didn't look kindly upon their little efforts at righteousness. And what I'm trying to tell you here is that we must guard the purity of our language. We mustn't take oaths frivolously. We mustn't use substitutes for God's name when God's name is the appropriate thing to use. But there are times when, in our Christian experience, strong language is called for, and we ought to use it then. And don't play around. Use it seriously. So, two dangers are to be cautioned against. Unrighteous anger. That is, um, using language when we're angry, and it's an unrighteous anger. That is when we're being personally vindictive. We oughtn't to use strong language when it's um, polluted by that kind of motivation. On the other hand, when uh, there is righteous indignation, strong language may appropri be appropriately used on occasion. The second time that we should see a caution here is when unnecessary offense would be given. Now, those of you who are studying for the ministry, let me belabor the obvious. You will give unnecessary offense if the first day in the pulpit you preach on Philippians 3.8 and don't bother to explain or anything like that and just give your straightforward Greek translation. That is not the offense of the cross, people. That's the offense of our own lack of wisdom. And we've got to watch about that, too. I'm going to talk about the literary use of uh, language just briefly, and then we're going to break for five minutes. We've said blasphemy is terrible. Can blasphemy be uttered by a Christian in a play? 
I wish I could talk around this. There's an awful lot I'd like to talk about, but I may mean, have to go right to the heart of it. Is it ever legitimate to write or speak a blasphemy or vulgarity in a story or a play? Well, I'll tell you. Greg, you're going to have to teach the second hour up here. You keep leading me to the punch. And I appreciate that very much. Exactly right. Doesn't the Bible record blasphemy? The Bible's very realistic. The fact that Weston continually is saying God and so forth is, is just to show what a you know, really low life he is. And uh, every time I read it, I get, you know, it just makes me you know, crawl to see that there's this kind of scum who's like that. And I think that's what Lewis was trying to create, is, is that is, is the rebellion against God creates a kind of spirit where a man can think he can just do that sort of thing. Granted, it's offensive to you, but what I'm, I'm asking, uh, Judy, is maybe Lewis wanted you to be offended by that. And it's, the, it's in the course of offending you by showing you what sin is all about that it brings about edification. But then again, if it just, you know, so blinds you and so forth because you weren't prepared for it or you just think it's overdone, and maybe it is. I mean, we, we just made different our judgment on that. Uh, then it would be... Um, what you'd have to say is he didn't follow out the principle very deftly. That is, he, he wasn't very able in, in, in following what I was saying here, that we ought to portray the sinfulness of sin. Um, but for the record, I wanted to say I thought that was an excellent book. <laughs> okay, um, any questions about this? Please, because we're hurrying, don't stop to ask questions. It would be much better that we covered something at least a little bit well than we covered everything not very well at all. So... Um, you won't find much of this discussion in the, the standard commentaries on the Decalogue, and so I wanted to venture into it a little bit more than I would ordinarily. Am I reading that page down here? Not uh, second example. Uh, we'd be a Christian liberty for a believer to uh, take in, say, our movies that, that are extremely offensive in, in areas of language and, and uh, conversion to. Uh, no, George, you see, what I'm saying is that when Christians write about the sinfulness of sin, they ought to portray it for what it is, and the ugliness of it ought to be seen. But when a man writes a novel which is uh, obscene, and when he puts, uh, when, he, when he films something, uh, say a sex act or something like that, he is not doing that to show the sinfulness of sin, he is doing that to draw us into the sinfulness of sin, which is to say he's trying to show us the joy of sin, which is an intentional parody on that terrible book that has sold so much, The Joy of Sex. And the idea there, you see, is, is not uh, to demonstrate what sin is all about, but to mask it for what it is not. And that, in fact, is just the, uh, the direct opposite of what I'm trying to teach.